I would ask you to please turn in your Bibles with me to our text, which comes from Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 to 15. Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 to 15. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Please then hear with me a reading of God's Word. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. As we study the Scriptures, there are many themes that we can draw from them. Many themes that we see from beginning to end. One such theme that is prominent in our text this morning that we see from really Genesis to Revelation is this. God's glory in delivering His people through judgment. God's glory in delivering His people through judgment. We see this all the way back in the book of Genesis with Noah and the flood, didn't we? In Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. What does God do? He determines to, to blot man out from the world. But in doing so, in judging them with those flood waters, what did He do? He preserved His servant Noah, who Peter calls later in his epistles a herald of righteousness. So through the judgment, He delivered His people. We see this likewise in the book of Exodus, don't we? In the Egyptians in the Red Sea. How God delivered His people through judgment. Right? Through judgment of their enemies. He parted the Red Sea. Those waters so that His people could get through. And then by those very same waters, He judged the Egyptians. We also see this in a text like Judges chapter 7. Remember there, God delivers the, the Midianites into the hands of the Israelites. Right? In, but only 300 of them, right? Gideon and the 300. In order that his people might no longer be under the oppressive rule of Midian anymore. And so, we see that God delivered his people through Gideon and the 300, through the destruction of his enemies. And then finally, we see this with, with Rahab and the fall of Jericho. That Rahab is, and her family is allowed to escape. They're, they're delivered. Right? Through the destruction after the walls of, of Jericho fall. And so we have example after example after example of God being glorified through delivering His people through judgment. Right? Through the judgment of His enemies. 
At the same time, though, these judgments throughout history also serve as examples to all people. Right? They, they serve to, to teach us something, right? to show all people something. In fact, what we see is that these judgments by which God's people are delivered are, are typological of something else. Right? They are a type. They, they point to something further and beyond themselves. We see this in a verse like Jude, verse 5. There we read this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulges in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. So what we need to see is that, for example, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was an emblem, right, or a representation of eternal hellfire. Right? It's destruction and Lot's deliverance in that same event served as examples of what was going to happen at the great and final judgment. Right? For the wicked, for the wicked Sodom, what do we see? That when God sent down that fire and sulfur from heaven, that they experienced a, a complete and a total destruction, which foreshadows what? The, the final judgment of God. Now, one thing that we have to understand is that, is that types are pictures of the antitype. Right? Types are pictures of the antitype. The type is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The antitype will be the final judgment. And so we see that the antitypes are other and greater than their type. And we see this with the final judgment, don't we? Right? There's an, an escalation in the judgment. Not only at the final judgment will be total and complete, but it will be irreversible. Right? It will be final and it will be in the lake of fire forever. At the same time, what do we see of, of Lot? A, a complete and total deliverance that he received, right? But this also was not by Lot's doing, was it? No. But rather, it was God who set His favor upon Lot and rescued him from that fire and sulfur from heaven. And likewise, that is the same thing we shall see at the return of Christ, at the final judgment. It will not be on the basis of, of what we have done that we are pulled from the fire, from the fire and sulfur, from the lake of fire, but rather we shall escape because God out of His grace and mercy, set His favor upon us and pulls us out of it, right? causing us to escape the lake of fire and the second death by His own grace and by His own power and by His own mercy. We even see another example of, of God's delivering His people through judgment in the, in the text that we just read over the last few weeks in 19 and in 20, haven't we? If you remember at the end of 19, what happens? as the armies of the beast and the false prophet come after God's people for that one final end-time battle, what happens? Right? The Lord destroys them, delivering His people through the judgment of His enemies. That's the same thing that we saw last week in verses 7-10. to As the dragon is released at the end of the thousand years, what does he do? He gathers the army for the battle of Gog and Magog. And he surrounds the encampment of the saints. And what happens? Just when it appears that Satan and his army will destroy God's people? 
God, by His own power, without the aid or help of His people, swoops in and destroys the enemy, delivering His people through judgment. Right? And so we see how, how God is glorified right? through delivering His people through the judgment of His enemies. We see that time and time and time again. Which brings us then to our text today where we see this for the final time. Right? Where He finally and lastly will judge our enemies. A judgment that has been foreshadowed all the way back to the book of, of Genesis. And now what it is all pointed to is, has led up to this. Verses 11 to 15. Look with me please at verse 11. There we read this. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it from His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. With this, let us look at our first point this morning, which we'll call this, the one seated on the throne. The one seated on the throne. Now we're told John sees a a great white throne. And it's this because of He who sits upon it. But the question is, who is actually sitting on the throne? The text doesn't explicitly tell us who it is, does it? Is it the Father who's sitting on the throne? If you remember, it's the Father who's sitting on the throne back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. It's the Father who's sitting on the throne in Revelation 5, verse 7 when, when the exalted Lamb comes to the Father and takes the scroll from Him. It's also the Father in, in Daniel chapter 7, which has been referenced many times in the book of Revelation, who is seated as the Ancient of Days upon the throne, judging right, the kingdoms of the world. So is it the Father who's on the throne? Well, there's more to the picture, isn't there? Scripture also tells us in Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. Right? Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. I think right there we have the answer. Right here we have the answer to the debate of of who in this final judgment scene is seated upon the throne. In the final judgment, what we need to see is that it is executed by God. The final judgment is executed by God in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we see. Because Scripture is clear that, that God is judge. Right? God is judge. We read that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, that God is the judge of all. However, this judgment by God will be executed in a visible manner through the person of Christ. Right? That's what we will see. This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 5, verse 27, of what the Father gives to Him. He says this, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. That's what Jesus says of Himself, that the Father has given to Him. He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And so what we see then in our text is that Christ shall return at His final coming as judge. He will come from heaven to earth as judge. And He will not then come in humility, but rather He will come in power. And He will come in strength and He will come in His, His might and in His glory and a greatness which far exceeds anything that you and I could ever imagine. This is why John says he sees a 
great white throne. Let's, let's pick apart each one of those words together individually. Right? First, it's great. As we said, it's great because of He who sits upon it. Right? It's great because the person of the Son is great. And so that's why it's a, a great white throne. His knowledge, likewise, is great when He comes, isn't it? As Christ will come with that omniscient knowledge. Right? Knowing everything that has ever taken place. He will know every deed that any of us have ever done. He knows every thought any of you will ever have. He knows every word that each of us have ever spoken. He's also great because He comes as the Omnipotent One. Right? He comes as the One who has all power to gather the nations before Him. Right? He is the Omnipotent One in that He has the power to cast both into heaven and into hell. He who is is coming is great likewise because He is great in His faithfulness, isn't He? In His faithfulness towards His covenant promises to His people. In performing everything that He has willingly obligated Himself to perform. He is also great because He comes as the, as the great lawgiver right, to judge the world against the holy law of God. Right? When He comes, it will also be great because He's coming with an innumerable amount of angels with Him. Oh, what a sight! Right? What a majestic and glorious and great sight it shall be when Christ returns with His angels. And then lastly, it's going to be great because of the work that's going to be done upon it. It's great work as He's going to, to judge the world in righteousness. Now we're told that it will also be white why white? Well, remember what white symbolizes. White symbolizes uh, moral perfection. Right? White symbolizes holiness. He who sits upon it is he who is morally perfect, who is infinitely holy. Likewise, white symbolizes what in the book of Revelation? Victory. So that He who is coming is the victorious one. He who is coming is the triumphant one over all of His enemies. And at that time, they shall bow the knee to the victorious, triumphant one. White may also be an allusion to Daniel chapter 7. If you remember the Ancient of Days as He sits upon His throne, we're told wears white garments. And He has hair as white as wool. And he is acting there as, as judge. And so, this may be a, an allusion now to Christ as the eschatological judge who God has sent into the world. And then we also see a throne. What's a throne symbolic of? Royalty. Who sits upon thrones? Kings. And so, the one who is coming will be Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords. It is a white throne because the King who comes to judge upon it will judge the nations in purity. And He will judge them in righteousness. It is a great white throne because as He judges them, He will execute perfect justice and utter equity amongst the peoples. At His coming, we're also told that from His presence, the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. What do we see here? That at the return of Christ there will be cataclysmic upheaval. Cataclysmic upheaval. This is what, this is what happens when absolute moral perfection and holiness comes from heaven to a fallen world. 
it will melt away before His presence. Right? That is what we see. In fact, we read about this in the book of Micah. In Micah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read this. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt away under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before fire, like waters pour down a steep place. And why does Micah record this? happening. It's because of sin. It was because of transgression. So that's the same thing that we see. Creation itself is going to flee when the Lord returns. Why? Because creation itself has been subject to the curse, hasn't it? Right? Creation itself has been tainted by sin and so it too will melt away under the holy presence of our King. This likewise could be an allusion to Daniel chapter 2, verse 35 as well. If you remember there, Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And as he interprets it there, he is describing the rubble of this great image that he had seen. And there he says this, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now the image that Daniel is describing is symbolic of the world's kingdoms that were going to give way to God's coming kingdom which stands forever and destroys them all. And so just as the, the wind carries the, these kingdoms away, in our text we see that that all the earth is carried away or, or flees away when Christ returns. That all that stands now is God and judgment. And so if point one then was the one seated on the throne, let's look at who are those who are standing before the throne. This is our second point then. Those who stand before the throne. Those who stand before the throne. Please look with me starting at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Now, what do these verses tell us? These verses tell us who are the object of God's judgment. Who are the object of God's judgment. And what we see is that it's all men. It's every person without exception. Great and small. Young and rich. Poor. Excuse me, poor and rich. Older, young, great or small. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, we, we read about this exact same event. There we are told this, Before Him will be gathered all nations... And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And so what we, hear, what we see going on here in verses 12 and 13 then is the general bodily resurrection of all people. All right, that's what's being described here when Christ returns. It's the same event that Christ describes in John chapter 5, verse 28. There He says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming 
when all who are in tombs will hear the voice and come out, those who do good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we see there's one general bodily resurrection of all people. And at that time, they'll be judged and be cast either into the lake of fire or into eternal glory. Now, the fact that there are two books, right, the books of, of deeds that people have done and the book of life at this one event that also, I think, clearly indicates to us that this is a, a general bodily resurrection of all people, believers and unbelievers alike. It's just not going to be unbelievers. All people will stand before Christ and His throne at this great and final judgment. I think one further point that, that, that buffers that is this, that we're told that the, the sea gives up its dead and those who are in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead and those that were in it. And they were judged. So that now those who are dead are, are standing, we're told. They're standing before a throne, which implies what? That those who are dead are no longer dead. Right? That all people have been resurrected now and, and stand and are living before the throne of God. That all people have been raised now from the grave. And what do we learn that happens to all of humanity then as they stand before this great white throne of judgment? We're told the books were opened, weren't we? The books of, of life and the, and the books of each one's deeds. And they were judged accordingly by those books. Now, brothers and sisters, we should not expect God to come down in the person of Christ with like a book bag, with a bunch of books in the bag by which He needs to unzipper His bag and, and turn the pages right, to, to recount all of people's deeds. Right? Rather, what we need to see is that the books that are being described here are simply metaphors for God's unfailing mind. Right? God doesn't need books to know what your reward and my reward are. He doesn't need books to remember your sin and what they were. He already knows it all. He doesn't need books to be reminded by it. Now, we are told what the basis of the judgment is as well, aren't we? And we're told it is what they have done. Right? People are going to be judged based on what they have done. How scary a thought, isn't it though? Right? That the omniscient God, who was ever present before all peoples, right, knows every single sin we have ever committed. He knows every wicked deed you have ever done. Every impure thought you've ever had. Any blasphemous word that you have ever spoken. How scary is it to think that that when He comes, everything you thought that you could do in darkness that would remain hidden shall not be hidden anymore, that it shall be brought to light, that it will be exposed and made manifest to all? We see then, brothers and sisters, why apart from Christ, no one could stand at the last judgment. All would be cast into the flames of eternal hellfire. Because all of us, each and every one of us, have, have turned aside from God. Right? Each and every one of us have, have sinned against Almighty God. We have committed evil. Right? We have committed treacherous acts against the King of, of heaven and earth and are deserving of that punishment. Imagine this, brothers and sisters. Imagine this. If right now, from heaven, God sent down the books of our deeds today. 
Imagine right now if I opened the books and began to read those deeds. I imagine that some of you would quietly slip out into the restroom. Some of you, maybe when it came time to hear your deeds read, would plug the ears of your children. Perhaps for others, after service was over, you'd leave and never come back again because of the shame and the embarrassment of hearing those wicked deeds read amongst God's people. But brothers and sisters, this is what's going to be exposed at the final judgment. In the book of Hebrews, we're told this in chapter 4, verse 13, "...and no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who we must give an account." And the standard by which we must give that account is the holy law of God. The same standard for all people as God has, has placed His heart upon the heart of all people. Every individual has the, heart, has the law of God written on their hearts. And now unbelievers want justice, don't they? Right? Unbelievers want fairness now, don't they? They want equity. Well, brothers and sisters, at the, at the judgment day, at the great white throne of judgment, they will receive exactly what it is they so clamor for today. Right? They will receive their just reward for their deeds. But it's not going to be a, a reward that they like. And in fact, brothers and sisters, God is so fair he is so fair that He will actually dole out greater punishment to those who have committed greater and more heinous sins in this life. This is what we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it is for you. Think about that, brothers and sisters, in our own time, in our own day and age, where with the spread of the Gospel and the access to the Gospel in our own country today. Think about what could be said of us. huh? Right? Woe to you, United States. For it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Capernaum than it will be for you on that great and last final judgment on that last great day. Because of all the light that we have been given, all of the free access to the Gospel that we have, and yet people deny God and persecute His church and desecrate His sacred Scriptures and they pervert marriage and they kill the unborn children and they lead children away with destructive teaching today, don't they? May it be a, a call upon this nation and all people to see our, our need to repent and to turn away from our sin and to the Lord. This leads us then to our third and our final point this morning, which is the second death. Please look with me at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in that book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Here, brothers and sisters, we see what? The, the last enemy is now destroyed. The last enemy, death. Right? Death is thrown alongside the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and all who bear the devilish mark of the beast into the lake of fire. A death that we said is, is spiritual in character. It is, it is the eternal torment of the soul that they will experience forever. And everyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be there, will be cast there. Why? Because they are judged according to their own works. And their works are found wanting. Right? They'll be judged in the, in the courtroom of God as guilty, right? Condemned for their sin, not standing before God with a perfect righteousness which is necessary to stand before Almighty God. But remember, brothers and sisters, that there are many books here at this final judgment. There are the books which contain all the, the deeds of what people have done, but there is also what? There is also a book of life. And in that book of life will be the names of all of those who the Father has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to have salvation in Him. Right In the book of life, will be the names of all of those who have experienced the first resurrection, right? the new birth, who have passed from death to life spiritually. For those names in the Lamb's book of life will be for, for those who have been granted right, faith and repentance and who have been kept by the power of God until the very end. For them there shall be no second death. Right, if, that, if that describes you, for you there shall be no second death. Why? Because of Christ. Right, because of Christ. Remember in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that the book of life is also called the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Right, in Revelation 13, 8, the book of life is called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, which makes clear to us what? That our election unto salvation and our deliverance to glory are, are always and only in Christ and because of Christ. And the names of the believers then who are in this book are the names that are in that book because Christ came and died for them. It is the book of the Lamb who was slain. The names of those who are in the book are those who He was slain for. It is only for them He was slain so that through faith in Him they would not perish but have everlasting life. So that all who believe in His name would be able to stand before the great white throne of judgment and not stand in terror and not stand in fear, but rather stand in excitement as you await the glory that is about to be revealed to you, knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God sent His Son to fulfill what? The righteous requirement of the law for you. That Christ Himself bore the curse that you deserved in your stead, so that we stand before the great white throne of judgment, we will now stand cleansed by the blood of Christ. We will now stand, not in our own filthy rags, in our own filthy, disgusting garments, but rather we will stand before the great white throne room with the robes of Christ, the righteous robes of Christ, guilt-free. And so while the, the wicked will experience the second death, because of their own wicked deeds, you and I and all believers will experience eternal life not because of our deeds, but because of the merits of Christ. Right? Because of what Christ has done, having reconciled us to God, delivered us from the bondage of sin, 
doing those things for, on our behalf for us. You know, brothers and sisters, I wonder why would anyone right, want a chance going to the final judgment, banking on their own works before God? Right, we see how they will fare, don't we? But you and I, right, those who have believed on the name of Christ, who, who trust in His name, who have cast off our own self-righteousness for the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, we do not have to fear then the final judgment. Right? Because we, are, we will stand there right, covered in the blood of Christ with the, His works perfectly completed. And for that reason, you and I shall one day stand with Him in glory. And so we can take comfort, brothers and sisters, at the final judgment that when we stand before Christ, we will be standing before our Redeemer. And we will be standing before our Savior. This is why David then can declare in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Right? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is actually why, brothers and sisters, I don't think that the believer's sins are going to be read as the unbeliever's sins will be read on that great and final day. Now, there are good brothers on both sides that, that disagree on this topic. There are good brothers who believe that when the books are opened at the final judgment, all of the believer's sin will be read, but it will just be declared forgiven. I think there are good reasons to not think that is the case. And I'm going to give you a few of them. Okay? First, think of this. When the books are opened, whatever book is being read from is the basis of your judgment. So the unbeliever has their works read, which is the basis for where they're going. Well, what's the basis for where we're going? Is it our works? It's Christ's works. And so, that's one reason why I don't think that the, the, the sin of the believers is going to be read aloud like, like it is for the unbeliever. Think also why that is. Well, didn't Christ take the shame of our sin with Him to the cross? Well, reading all of that sin is going to bring about what? Shame and embarrassment. That's a shame and embarrassment the unbeliever needs to have. But it's a shame and embarrassment that Christ is, has taken away from the believer. Also, I think Psalm 32, which I just read, is, is one reason. Right? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I mean, think about even the, the promise of the covenant of grace as a reason why our sin will not be read in that manner. Right? What, do, what do we read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. Reading it is a bringing it back up. It's a remembering it, isn't it? Think also because of, of, of the example of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. If you remember what happened to him in Isaiah chapter 38 and verse 17, he falls ill. Right? He falls sick. And Isaiah tells him, you're going to die. And what does Hezekiah do, king of Judah? He cries out to the Lord. And in verse 17, this is what we're told. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Never to be placed before his eyes again. Always behind his back. 
And then finally, I think of what David says in Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as east is from west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So for these reasons, brothers and sisters, I think that we have uh, reason uh, to look forward to the judgment, not because all of our own sin is going to be brought up before our eyes, but rather, when it's our turn, it's going to be reading the works of Christ and he, what He did on our behalf. Right? His perfect works that He accomplished. His merits, which are the basis for why we will enter into eternal glory. And so as we have then these two groups we've seen, and these two types of works, and these, and these two destinations juxtaposed, it ought to cause the, the hair on the head of every unbeliever to stand, shouldn't it? As they think and consider the, the terrible and, and dreadful judgment that awaits them, which is why it is so incredibly important for the unbeliever, right, to see their need for Christ the Savior, to see their wickedness and their sin and what it deserves, and then to flee and to cleave to Christ and Christ alone, for it is only Christ who can deliver us from this second death. And for the godly though, right, for the godly, we ought to look at the final judgment with joy and excitement, with, with a cheerful anticipation. Likewise, it ought to cause us to encourage one another with the promise of that day as well, then, shouldn't it? Because that day is going to be the day in which Christ is glorified before the whole world. Right? Christ on that day will be glorified before the eyes of every man, before all peoples, before all angels, before all the devils. On that great day, brothers and sisters, let us also look forward to it and rejoice because it will be a day of refreshment for you and I. And on that day, there will be the times of refreshing. A day of the great and final deliverance of God's people from evil and sin and death through the judgment of all of our enemies to the praise to the glory of God's name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this vision that You have gifted to Your people. May it be a caution to all people and a warning of what will happen to those who reject Your Son and persecute Your people and deny the faith. May it be a caution to believers to see our need to every day cleave to Christ and to trust in Christ and to only hold on to His merits as reason for why we can look forward to that final day of judgment where we will be vindicated by God, where we will be cast not into the second death, but eternal glory with our Lord. Cause us, O Heavenly Father, then to rejoice in cheerful anticipation for that day. Help us when when our brothers and sisters are feeling down, to be encouraged by the thought of that great day, seeing that at that day, all that will occur will be for the glory of God and for the good of the church. And may we desire that day and may we call out then, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.